From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just ahead on the program, the job market and the Fed in 2023. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking at Europe entering a new year with an old conflict. I'm Madison Mills with a look at how things are already heating up for the 2024 presidential race. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at the biggest market trends expected in 2023 for Asia. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker. Let's start today's program with the December jobs report that's going to be released this coming Friday. Joining me now to preview that, what it means for the Federal Reserve, Bloomberg's Matt Bosler. Matt, uh, before the end of the year, we got a piece of data, applications for unemployment benefits, the jobless claims, they rose slightly. So uh, is this proof positive that Fed policy is starting to work as far as the the U.S. labor market uh, is concerned? You know, it was really only an ever so slight uptick. And initial claims for unemployment insurance are actually down quite a bit from where they were over the summer. And so we actually really aren't seeing yet much of an impact uh, from Fed policy on the labor market. And it continues to be the big vexing question for policymakers and a lot of forecasters who are forecasting a recession uh, in the coming quarters. Yeah, it's important we have to explain to everybody because uh, because of wages in particular. That's a big component of inflation, and we know the Fed is battling to get the rate of inflation down. Um, do they really have to uh, target and maybe even uh, torpedo the U.S. jobs market to achieve their goal of some price stability? Well, you know, that's a really interesting debate right now because what we're seeing in the inflation data is – services inflation is still running pretty high. And the Fed kind of views the services sector as the sector where wages are going to pass through to prices uh, most effectively and efficiently. And so the, the logic is that, yes, they do need to weaken the job market and bring that wage growth down in order to filter through to the lower services inflation. However, the the services inflation story is pretty interesting because that's really being driven by um, things in healthcare and transportation, like think airline tickets. And you, the case that that is really driven by wage growth in particular is not super strong when you actually dig into the data. So um, this is gonna continue to be part of the debate 
definitely the Fed is watching that wage growth number very carefully because that's how they think of it. But it is still possible that inflation could come down a lot in the coming months, even if wage growth does stay high. And services will remind everybody. That's the that's the biggest part of the economy right now, right? That's right. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, the goods producing sector has uh, shrunk and shrunk over the years, leaving mostly services behind. And so that's where most Americans are employed these days. Uh, it makes up the majority of consumption patterns. And so that's why, you know, there's so much attention on it. We've heard a lot about uh, some job cuts coming on Wall Street, uh, job cuts in technology. Have they shown up anywhere in the data? Are uh, are they big enough to uh, have an impact? Not yet. You know, we're seeing, we've certainly seen a lot of job cuts in, say, the mortgage industry, you know, in the housing sector. Things just aren't really happening because interest rates have shot up so quickly. But, you know, these big high-profile announcements from the big tech companies or the big Wall Street firms, they're just not really enough to move the needle. And it seems like there is some anecdotal evidence, at least on the tech side, that engineers uh, and the like who have been laid off from some of those firms are not having uh, too much trouble finding new jobs. So it seems like the labor market does remain very fluid, very strong, um, you know, both from a kind of economic data perspective and also somewhat from an anecdotal perspective as well. Okay, so uh, let's move ahead to uh, Friday with the, the release of the December jobs report. What's the expectation? So the expectation is for a further slowdown in job growth uh, to something like 200,000 jobs created in December, which is still quite high, you know, relative to uh, historical standards. Um, a unemployment rate staying unchanged at 3.7 percent, so still quite low. And wage growth, uh, you know, still coming in pretty robustly at, at 5 percent on a year-over-year basis. I think that wage number is going to be really key for some of the reasons we just discussed. Now, an interesting thing about the last jobs report last month is that, you know, everybody was forecasting a slowdown in wage growth, continuing the trend of the previous several months. We actually got a huge pop in wage growth last month. And the reason for that was we had a 3.8% increase in wages in the transportation and warehousing sector alone. Now, just for perspective, that is the biggest increase uh, on record in monthly data going back to the early 1970s by by an order of magnitude. So the big question is, you know, is that kind of wage growth in that one sector, which was so big that it was enough to lift overall wage growth, is that something that really is going to repeat this month, or was that some sort of, you know, aberration one-off? And so I think that's the big thing to be watching in this report. Is the report a little muddy because of um, the season, because of the holidays and hiring associated with that? Yeah, there's so many questions around that, and that would be especially something that could impact the transportation and warehousing sector. That's a sector where we've seen massive job growth since the pandemic began because of all of the shift to you know online purchases and Amazon deliveries and so on and so forth. So we've got those normal seasonal holiday patterns. We've got other issues like declining response rates to the surveys that make up the jobs report. A lot of people are asking questions about whether that's having an impact on the data. So just tons of moving pieces right now that are making this really hard to read, even somewhat harder than usual. I mean, it's never easy, but uh, lots of cross-currents at the moment. Now, is the Federal Reserve still the number one story uh, for for markets overall as we head into 2023? I think so, although, you know, that is, we're starting to see signs maybe a little bit that that is changing because 
a couple of weeks ago, the latest Federal Reserve interest rate decision, they came out and they were very hawkish. Um, and the markets didn't really buy the hawkish message. And the reason for that is because the Fed put out these inflation forecasts that really look way too high to the markets. And so now investors are kind of saying, well, we think inflation is going to be lower than the Fed thinks. And when the Fed realizes that and sees the lower inflation, they're going to kind of back off their hawkish stance. So we're starting to see a bit of a uh, divergence between what the Fed thinks is going to happen and what investors think is going to happen. And that's really going to put a premium on what the data actually show going forward to dictate the course of markets. Investors are fighting the Fed. Did you just say that? Well, not quite. The, the way the Fed says it when they're asked that question is, we just have a difference of opinion, and we'll see who's right. Yeah, we'll see. Who, it's usually the Federal Reserve, if uh, history is, is any guide. What um, what factors go into a Fed, I hate this word, but a Fed pivot? So definitely the inflation reports are going to be very important. Um, we need to see inflation coming down at a rate similar to the last few months when it's really started coming down. You know, the wage growth is also going to be a major factor in that. Um, you know, the other big question is, all of these forecasters see a recession in 2023. I mean, it's definitely the majority consensus opinion now. And so does that start showing up in the data? We haven't really seen it start showing up in the data yet. If it does start showing up, then do we kind of get a change of tone from the Fed because it's like, okay, this is really happening now. There's a lot more certainty that that's a big possibility. I think that's going to be really interesting to see how they respond to the the changing data if that comes to be the case. Are you going to know a recession when we're in it or we're going to know a recession when, you know, some few quarters after it happens? Yeah, typically it's the latter, which is the way it, it normally plays out. But, you know, I think um, part of the complication this time around is that we've got the pandemic, which has just reordered the economy in so many interesting ways that it's making it a lot harder to read the early warning signs, those bleeding indicators of recession that people usually rely on to kind of get a feel for where we're at in the economy, even if the actual data aren't going to show it until a few quarters later. And so just the way the pandemic has scrambled all of those patterns is kind of leaving plenty of room for speculation and debate that, you know, might not even necessarily uh, be present in more normal downturns. And there, there can't be a recession if the labor market is still resilient. No. So we're really, that is why there's so much focus on that data and so much uh, head scratching over why it stayed so strong. I mean, that is really the, you know, what defines recession. Earlier this year, we had two quarters of negative GDP growth and there was a big debate. Is that a recession or is that not a recession? And ultimately, I think the consensus was, well, it's not because the labor market did stay strong. And so if the labor market continues chugging along, then Maybe we start seeing some of these recession calls get pushed back even further. We've already seen a little bit of that so far with people making these calls and then saying, you know what, it's going to come a little later than we thought because the data are staying so strong in the near term. Matt, always a pleasure, and uh, Happy New Year. Thank you, John. Same to you. And that's Bloomberg's Matt Bosler. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at the devastating impact of Russia's war on Ukraine. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, shifting political winds in Washington. But first, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had a devastating impact on its people, infrastructure, and economy, even as it goes into a second year. And for more, let's head to London, bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. John, it's hard to celebrate the new year with a war ongoing in Europe, one which has created 8 million refugees, a raft of sanctions against Russia and a global energy shock that has taken Europe to the brink of recession. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Bloomberg Senior Reporter for International Affairs Mark Champion and our Power and Gas and Renewables Editor Rachel Morrison. Mark, Rachel, you're both often guests on Bloomberg Radio. So I'm really pleased to have you with us today. Mark, let me just start with the war in Ukraine. What is the state of play as we now look to a new year and months of this conflict ongoing? Well, it's a kind of a big question. I mean, essentially, uh, we're just moving into a season where offensive uh, campaigning becomes quite possible again. The winter season is relatively short. It depends on the the ground being firm. Um, And so you now have the Ukrainians in particular warning that the Russians are um, as unlikely as it seems to many military analysts just because of the state of the Russian forces, even the new conscripts that they brought in. Um, But nevertheless, saying that whether it's in January, February or March, the Russians will try again with a major uh, offensive, um, including trying to take Kiev. You know, whether they do that, uh, how much is a feint, um, you know, how much they can do is very unclear. You know, war is largely about opportunity as much as it is about strategy. And it will uh, depend on what the Russians can do and what they think they can do. You know, uh, it's been clear from the start of the war that that those things are not always aligned, um, Mm. that their idea of what they can do isn't necessarily realistic. So it's difficult to predict. Um, but uh, it's likely to be quite long and grim. Yeah, and perhaps the most important issue is going to be access to weaponry. And you have to remember that it was February when the war began in 2022. So, yeah, perhaps coming into a month that could again be quite critical. I mean, what's the aim then in the next few weeks and months? Is Is it all about weapons? Well, weapons are obviously essential. Um, and if either side, uh, you know, runs out of the, uh, you know, critical munitions, you know, so artillery shells or on in, the, you know, there's really two parts to the war, one on the ground, which is very reliant on artillery um, and one in the air where Russia is, uh, you know, uh, attacking essential infrastructure with long range missiles. Ukraine is trying to shoot them down. So there's sort of two separate campaigns, both of which have really issues as to how big of a stockpile do they still have of cruise missiles, for example, or Iranian drones. And then, uh, you know, the question remains for the Ukrainians on the other side, you know, how will they have enough anti-missile defenses and anti-aircraft defenses, enough missiles to take all these down? Mm. Um, and you know, will they be overwhelmed? And the same is, is true with artillery. We just don't know. There's quite a lot of dispute about exactly what is the state of the Russian artillery stocks and yeah. you know, will they have enough for a major campaign? 
Look, we've we've covered the war in Ukraine, you know, considered by many one of the worst conflicts since World War Two throughout the last few months. And so I, I want to also get on to the the hopes, the possibility of, of ending the fighting. But I want to at this point also bring in Rachel Morrison when it comes to the other issue that has flowed from this conflict on the ground, which is Putin's energy pressure on Europe. It's certainly become immensely expensive, Rachel. Is it working, Putin's strategy of sort of squeezing Europe? How do you see it now? Yes, in some ways, some of the pressure and some of the power that Putin has had over Europe has been, has waned somewhat since the Nord Stream pipeline attack left it unable to flow any gas to Europe. So the remaining gas that Europe is getting from Russia goes via Ukraine, which is why a lot of the conflict that Mark was just outlining is important, because at times it has seemed as though Russia is really aiming at energy infrastructure, which obviously has a big impact on people in Ukraine itself, but also on those transit flows to Europe. I think we have seen elevated prices, obviously, from the cut in supplies. And everybody is thinking about what will happen if we don't have those Russian supplies next winter. And refilling gas storage in Europe is going to be more difficult without Nord Stream. And Mm. many people are assuming that the flows via Ukraine will eventually be cut because of the conflict, because things are getting worse. It's getting um, more intense that that is inevitable. And You know, even if some people say it's mostly priced in, there'll still be a bit of a shock to Europe and to European gas prices if and when that does happen. Do you think that there's any hope that the energy crisis could get better in 2023 if Europe tries to adapt, admittedly, to a terrible situation? Honestly, what we are hearing is that the crisis is at least going to stay as bad as it has been this year, if not get worse. And that's because this year we were able to fill gas storage quite quickly because we still had Nord Stream gas flowing from Russia. When we come out of the winter season, we'll have to see how low storage levels get. If they are quite low, and in fact, the lower they are, the more difficult that task will be. And the European Union has set all kinds of targets to make try to make sure that we get those levels back up but we are going to struggle to do that we also have the french nuclear fleet which has sort of problems and extended outages so that's going to mean that we need more gas for electricity production which means there's less spare to put into storage so even european leaders are talking about getting ready for next winter and it doesn't seem like the crisis is over yet or anywhere near mark champion um Vladimir Putin, is he bogged down in something protracted? Does this become a forever war, perennial conflict? Or does Ukraine have to accept a deal in order to get a ceasefire, to lose some territory? What are the various scenarios now that people are thinking about, you know, if if we try to think about an end to the conflict? Well, what seems to be clear at this point is that, uh, you know, Putin would like this to be seen as a forever war and that he sees uh, stretching it out, time being on his side. So although uh, when they invaded in February, it seems so long ago now, the Russian command clearly expected this to be a very short campaign, only a few days, they weren't prepared. Um, But a lot of water has passed under the bridge since then. And uh, at this point, the Russian strategy is clearly to grind down 
the will to resist in Ukraine and more critically in the West. You know, it's clear to the Russians also by now uh, that the the Ukrainians have a formidable fighting force and also uh, that the Western weapons that are being supplied are critical. Um, But it's clear also that as soon as that supply of weapon dries up, it will be very difficult for the Ukrainians to continue. And that is the situation, you know, he's, he's trying to press both in Kiev and in Western capitals for leaders to decide, look, there isn't going to be a Ukrainian victory. So the sooner that we end this, the sooner the pain will stop both for Ukraine and for for Western governments, with it, in particular the energy issues that you know were just being described. Mark, thank you so much for being with me. Bloomberg Senior Reporter for International Affairs, Mark Champion, and our Power and Gas and Renewables Editor, Rachel Morrison, on the difficulties as we go into 2023 with Russia's uh, war in Ukraine ongoing. My thanks to both of you for joining us. I'm Caroline Hepgare in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. John. Caroline, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, 2023 could be another wild year politically as we head into the 2024 presidential election. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week and the new year. Why to watch when it comes to politics as the battle lines are drawn for the 2024 presidential race. And for more, let's go to Bloomberg Quick Takes' Madison Mills. Thank you, John. And it's still almost two years away from the 2024 presidential election, but things are already heating up. On the Democratic side, we're seeing people like the newly elected incoming House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. He's saying that he's all for a 2024 run for President Biden. I know he'll have a vision for the future. I look forward to strongly supporting President Biden's re-election. Incoming House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries there on ABC's This Week, heard here on Bloomberg Radio. And joining me now to talk about how things might unfold in the coming year, Bloomberg's deputy managing editor in Washington, Wendy Benjaminson. Wendy, always a joy to speak with you, and thanks for joining us. Let's start with what's happening for the Democrats here. What would you say is is the single biggest way that we're already seeing Democrats prepare for battle heading into 2024? Well, I think one thing they're doing, Madison, and uh, we just heard the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, say it, is they're lining up behind Biden. There was some talk earlier, uh, earlier this year and uh, last year, that, you know, maybe we should have somebody else. He's 80. He's going to be 82 when the campaign starts. Um, he would be the oldest president in American history. And there was some sense, and you know, his public approval ratings were really low. So there was some sense that maybe somebody else ought to step in. And then I think they looked around and saw who else could step in. The bench is not 
great for people who could beat one of the improbable Republican nominees. And then Biden did spectacularly well in the midterms. I mean, we knew he was going to lose the House of Representatives, but he lost them by only, I think, five seats, a very small handful of seats. I think it's eight, actually, Um, but a very small handful of seats. They kept the Senate. Voters did not seem to despise him as much as they thought. And now they are lining up behind Joe Biden for a second term. Right. Voters didn't. And now we're seeing lawmakers sort of feeling the same, as you said, Wendy, just really putting their support behind a Biden run after that red wave became more like a very, very light red trickle. Let's hear what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say about a 2024 race. I think uh, President Biden being on the ticket, if if he runs and if he runs, I'll support him, um, it would be very, very helpful. So Schumer saying that it would be helpful, but I do want to look at Republicans here because they will hold the majority in the House next term and said they plan to hold hearings on Hunter Biden and the origins of COVID-19. How much of a liability is that going to be for the Biden camp? You're absolutely right. They are going to investigate Hunter Biden, COVID-19, and just about everything else they could possibly think of. There's there's talk of impeaching the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for the fact that the border is uh, practically uncontrolled at this point. Um, You know, a lot of migrants coming across the border, they want to impeach him for that. They want to look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. And so all of this is because of 2024. This is an attempt to weaken the president and the Democratic Party heading into 2024 to strengthen their hand. You mentioned impeachments. Is there much of a possibility of of a strong push for a Biden impeachment? We were talking about that a little bit heading into the midterms. What's the political will towards that? I think that political will, which probably exists in some of the more fringe quarters of the Republican Party, um, is pretty much stomped out. Kevin McCarthy, who is most likely going to be the speaker, he will have uh, his election for that um, on Tuesday. Um, But he has already come out and said he sees no reason to impeach Biden. And, you know, again, there has to be a reason to impeach someone. There has to be some evidence of a crime committed, high crime or misdemeanor. And so he doesn't see any uh, reason to rip the country apart and do that, um, you know, and go through all of that again. Well, speaking of fringe members of each party, Wendy, one thing that we're seeing of more lately is the Biden camp pushing back on Republican behavior. One example that comes to mind is when Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, said that the January 6th rioters would have been both armed and successful if she'd been leading during that 2021 insurrection. Biden's press secretary immediately pushing back on that without even waiting for a question from reporters on it. Is this kind of pushback more of what we can be expecting as we get closer to that 2024 election? Yes, I absolutely. I think that um, you're responding to that particular statement was probably 
almost pro forma. It was such an out there statement to suggest that, you know, not let's do it again and this time let's be armed. Um, that was so outrageous that I think the White House felt it had no choice but to respond to that. But in terms of a rapid response team, in terms of reacting to everything, getting in a wartime footing, if you will, a campaign footing, I think is something you'll start seeing. They may try to govern for a couple of months here in the early winter, um, but by spring, the presidential campaign for the following fall, a year and a half later, will be full on. Well, I want to pick up on that because you mentioned that we're going to have, you know, some legislating for a couple of months and then it's going to be all <laughs> campaign Can you talk to me about what presidential campaigns do to Congress in terms of legislation and the actual policy? Do we see issues like immigration, for example, becoming more of a political football than, you know, a policy issue? And how does that play into, you know, not just what Congress is focusing on, but also the 2024 election? Right. Well, I think I have a feeling there will be very little legislation passed. Um, in the next Congress, mostly because of the breakdown that occurred after the uh, the partisan breakdown that occurred after the midterm elections. You have Republicans controlling the House, the, the Democrats controlling the Senate without a, a need for a tiebreaker. And then, um, you know, the White House is obviously still Democratic. So anything that the Republican Party wants to push as a piece of legislation that's really a campaign uh, tactic is going to die in the Senate, is going to die at the White House, even if it were to pass the Senate. I do want to talk about the Republican side here, because, of course, we have the big question of who the 2024 candidate is going to be. Obviously, former President Trump announcing plans to run, but slipping in the polls. And then we've got Florida Governor Ron DeSantis positioning himself. Wendy, I have to say, I was in Florida covering the midterms. And what struck me about DeSantis was that his rallies were really light on attendance, particularly in comparison to some of the Trump rallies I've been to previously. What does that mean for DeSantis come 2024? And what do you expect to see from him? Well, I think, you know, some of his rallies were were around the election, his election for governor. He is not the personality that draws the crowds like Trump did. I do think Trump's rally attendance is way down from the peak in 2016. Um, Ron DeSantis is a definite contender for the nomination. If you look at polling right now, DeSantis is in the lead with Trump trailing and then everyone else about a block behind them. Um, You know, there is so it's really Ron DeSantis to lose at this point. He has never faced national scrutiny. He is just starting to now because he is a likely Republican nominee. He also hasn't announced yet, but there's there's no indication that he is not going to run. He could beat Trump. And then the question is, can Biden defeat DeSantis? DeSantis is um, very popular among Republicans. He's very careful. He's very smart. He is very, very conservative. Thank you, Wendy, so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insights always. That was Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg's Deputy Managing Editor in Washington. For more of our political news coverage, tune in to Bloomberg Sound On, which you can hear weekday afternoons at 5 Wall Street time, and Balance of Power with David Weston. That's weekdays at noon Wall Street time, all right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Madison Mills, and this is Bloomberg. John? Madison, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, investing in Asia in the coming year. 
I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Big COVID policy changes in China causing challenges for the nation's health system and also eventually could cause more headaches for global central banks. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Brian Curtis. John, Asia is getting back on its feet. China is reopening and the rest of the world is trying to figure out what it means for growth and inflation. And to take a closer look at what it means for markets, we're joined by Bloomberg MLive strategist Mark Cranfield. The China reopening, a net positive or net negative, Mark? I guess it depends on which part of the world you, you happen to be sitting in. I think in, in general for Asia, they're probably going to be quite pleased um, to see that happening. They would expect some sort of boost to, to growth numbers in most parts of Asia. I mean, Korea, Taiwan especially have been down because of that. And obviously Hong Kong is a very special case, but they certainly need to see more tourists from China and more free flow of business between the two places. So in general, from a growth point of view, um, Asia will be happy. That should translate into some better consumer spending and some other parts of the economy that do well. Of course, the the rest of the world will be a little bit nervous about the potential bump that we might see in, in global inflation as China starts to do more and as trade is more freely flowing around the world. They, if there's increased demand or resources out of China, then of course that could mean that the slight downshift you've seen in, in inflation in the US and some other parts will, will start to stop and that, that could be a worry to, to central bankers there. You mentioned some of the countries in North Asia. I'm curious about uh, the transmission mechanism for, say, Southeast Asia, that they would benefit from the China reopening. Would it be mostly through tourism or could it be trade as well? Yeah, both, I think, is, um, is certainly up for grabs. I mean, if you look at a country like Thailand, they've made it very clear that they're heavily dependent on tourism flows for a big part of their economy. They've been underperforming substantially because of the lack of Chinese tourists for the last couple of years. They've Their projections for 2023, they made assumptions that large numbers of Chinese would come back. And they're not going to meet those tourism numbers unless there is a steady flow of, of tourists coming from China. So certainly... Thailand is a very clear case where the economy um, is going to do pretty well if if those China numbers return. Um, then if you look at the the effect, as people get more confident that the China growth is, is going to be sustainable, that will probably help to support the Chinese currency, which in turn um, will probably help to stabilize some of the South Asian currencies, which have been generally a bit weak this year. We've seen the um, Indi Indonesian rupiah, the Thai baht, Malaysian ringgit have all been relatively soft this year, but uh, a stronger yuan would certainly help their case as well. They seem to move in a, a similar orbit. The other big issue affecting growth perhaps in the first half of the year will be uh, the U.S. dollar and the Fed. Uh, is the U.S. dollar tied to when inflation peaks in the United States and, and thus what we might expect from the Fed? Um, to an extent, it is. Um, I think the, the biggest question for investors in, in relation to the Fed is, is I think it's widely assumed that the, the Fed are going to take interest rates up to about 5% short-term rates, maybe a fraction higher. But then the big question for everybody is how long are they going to be able to hold rates at that level unchanged? And I mean, we, if we take Jerome Powell and his colleagues at face value, they seem very determined that once they reach a high short-term rate, that they're going to keep the rate there for quite a long time, possibly through the whole of 2023. 
But of course, in the background, what they're going to start to see most likely is that US unemployment numbers will start to creep up. And there's going to become at some stage pressure for them if they see those numbers increasing too quickly. Obviously, that will be a sign to them that the economy is slowing down faster than maybe they, they thought. And then people will start calling for them. Hey, it's time for you guys to start responding with an easier monetary policy. Mark, all the best. Happy holidays and a very good 2023. And thanks very much for joining us. That is Bloomberg M Live strategist Mark Cranfield. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Brian, thanks a lot. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.